welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Each week, our hosts will be interviewing local, regional, and national business leaders to give you an inside peek into how they lead their business to success in the ever-competitive business climate. Welcome to Monday Morning Coffee with Inside the Firm. Today, I have a very special guest. Mike Kading is the CEO of Norhart. They design, build, and rent apartments. They are transforming the way this is done by incorporating technologies and techniques that have revolutionized other industries. This has resulted in improved quality and reduced cost of housing, something very important right now. Ultimately, they are committed to solving America's housing shortage and affordability crisis. And in doing so, they hope to improve the way we all live. Mike, welcome to the show. Hey, thanks for having me. Uh, So I, I would love to know how you got into the industry that I work in all the time and the one that you work in all the time now. Tell us how you got here. You know, are you from a family of entrepreneurs, builders, or did you, or did you break in yourself? Yeah, my parents originally started the business. And so it was very small at the time. I can remember taking family trips out to the local hardware store. Where we'd pick up full carts full of materials, drive a half an hour and, and work in these really small apartments at the time. And I really grew up with it over the years. And then I went off to college I wanted to do something different. I really wanted nothing to do with the family business. And the reason that was is because I don't want people to think it was given to me. Hmm. So I kind of wrestled through my own ego on that and realized that deep down, I always knew I wanted to make some kind of meaningful, positive impact on the world. And so taking this opportunity to do that um, just seemed to make sense. And so I got excited by that and eventually I jumped in and my, my dad and I worked together. Uh, and then at one point he passed away not long after he started. So when you when you jump back in with him, Mike, yeah. how big was the business at that point, and how many properties were did you own at that point? We just had a few properties. It was ninety one units in total. Okay, and then from there, how how have you? What's the growth curve been like? Yeah, so the with my dad and I, we doubled the size of the company in about four years. We're about one hundred eighty two hundred units at that time, and then uh, we've doubled again, so four hundred, and then. Recently, we've been growing quite rapidly. So we're like eight, 800 or 1,000 now. We're producing about 500 units a year at the moment. But we're getting close to doubling every year. And are you guys doing it uh, a raw land development? I mean, you guys are purchasing the land and going through the whole process and everything like that? Oh, from, from dirt all the way to key to the resident. There's still some people that will listen to this show that are completely unfamiliar with the process. And I I talk about it a lot. but I And so people are probably tired of hearing me talk about it. What is your perspective going through the process as somebody, because you're not an architect, right? What, what did you go into college for? Computer science. Perfect. So somebody who went from computer science into now, basically as a real estate developer, what is the, what does the process look like from your end? Do you think it's difficult? Do you think it's easier? Is it get, is it getting better? Um, you know, how long does it take from the point of when you purchase a piece of land to when you guys are actually turnkey? So when you first dream about a project and start finding that land, you might have a year just to get through approvals. And then after that, once you break ground, um, it varies depending on the size of the project, but another year or year and a half after that. So if you're going relatively fast, two years, but it can be three or four. In some cases, I've seen eight or 10 years. What do you try to do on your end from an owner standpoint to help your designers through the process, like like, what is a good owner? What would you describe a good owner as trying when they when they're when you're going through that process? Because there's a lot of things that you need to provide for that. You know, uh, titles from the land, 
um, all kinds of uh, attorney work, you know, for agreements, stuff like that. You know, for us, we have all of the staff in-house from architects, engineers, to the developers, to the people building the facility. And so from that perspective as an owner, we think a lot about constructability and making sure it's we can drive down the cost of construction. And that's a little bit different if you are a totally a third party. In that regard, you want to think about how to make the lives easy of the team members you're involving, because then they're going to make your bill cheaper to you. So it's uh, repetition in the design, uh, simpler to design, the, the easier it is for architects and engineers. Um, the less variances that you break, things like setbacks from the street are just easier to get through city council. And so there are little things you can do like that to make life easier. Beautiful. Yeah, I love that. So did you guys, what made you decide to, is that part of the idea with lowering the cost of construction, growing to the size that you have was was just saying, okay, I'm I'm gonna hire an I'm gonna hire a full-time architect, full-time engineer, all of those sorts of things. Yeah, it's been an evolution over time, but our focus is to drive down costs. And so when you're thinking about it that way, you start looking at individual problems and optimizing that problem. So one of the issues that we had was architects and engineers think a lot about how to make their work easy, right? <laughs> they get paid more if they spend less hours on your project. But the thing is a project is better oftentimes if you're spending more time on mm -hmm. architecture and engineering because you're starting to design the constructability of the project so this is fundamental mismatch between us and architecture and so we realize in order to do this the way we want to we need the architects and engineers and the designers all in-house to make it really functional well can you give some specific examples of one of the things we do is we try to design in our firm um into two foot increments because then, mm -hmm. you know, obviously, right. Plywood's in two foot, you know, four by eight sheets. There's a lot of building materials that are very close to that interval. Yeah. Can you, what are kind of like specific examples besides that repetition you already mentioned, but th that have helped you guys drive construction costs down? Well, there's so many, uh, I guess the stick on the engineering and architects, for example, uh, we've narrowed down the, or we figured out the width of the building. Uh, a particular width, I think it's 28 feet or 30 feet per unit is the mm -hmm. width. And based upon that, we're using steel joists. And so the engineering team is spending months doing a deep dive, like dissertation level analysis on what a steel uh, beam looks like for that. It's a, a joist. And so that way they optimize the speed that those joists get built, the hole placement for uh, HVAC and other things that get put in that. And the amount of material that's used. And so it's it's those sorts of things you can start doing from an engineering perspective. There's lots of other stuff we do though as well. How did you, so you know, one of the things you you talk about is um, building a great culture um, and yeah. finding the best people. And, you know, this is sort of on the tails of, I guess I didn't, I didn't know that you had this many in-house designers and everything. I, th I think it's phenomenal and a phenomenal approach. I mean, you're describing, you're, you're telling us all the benefits. Like how, how did you, find great employees how do you know what's your strategy to try and really save yourself the problem of ah they they passed interview one they passed interview two maybe you know i don't doubt there's three or anything like that like they they put on a good show and then you bring in this employee in and they turn out like oh man they just were good actors um how do you how do you figure that out from the beginning what's your strategy yeah so taking one quick step back is that the number one lesson I've ever learned is hiring the very best people. And we will literally fly people in from other states to work with us every single week. We fly them back home. But to find those people, I think the first thing we did was realize 
the, we need a whole recruiting team to do it well. And so about wow. 5% of our staff actually recruiters. We have 15 recruiters on staff now and they go crazy deep. They'll, they'll analyze other companies and try to identify the best people in those companies, build relationships over time to get them to come work for us. Uh, and even so there are other techniques we use, for example, um, a trial period. So not all positions will take this, but if people are willing to do it, we'll give them a two week trial period. And then the, their coworkers, the people on their team will decide whether or not they get hired or not after that trial period. So even, even getting a trial period is like one in a hundred, but after that, it's less than 50% actually make it through the trial period. But then the last thing, and I think another really important aspect is be really good about letting people go, mm. which sounds a little bit backwards, but we, we define our values really well and people know what to expect. And if they don't live up to that, we will support them really well on the way out. We say average performance gets a generous severance. And so we get people thanking us for firing them. Huh. Um, but even so, like after even hiring people on, it's maybe about 50% of them actually work out long-term. Beautiful. How do you tell us about your company's culture? You know, what are some things you guys are doing to then once you, once, once everybody's decided, these are the right folks for us, we're going to hire them full-time. They've passed your litmus tests. Um, if you've, you know, done extensive research on them, all, all of that good stuff, how are you guys maintaining that culture to then hopefully keep them in your pipeline so long as they keep flourishing in your company? Yeah. The, the number one thing again is, is hiring the right people. If you get that right, a lot of the culture stuff falls in place. Mm -hmm. Um, we often say great workplaces are simply stunning colleagues. It's who you're working with that matter. Um, and things like friendships and events and stuff happen organically out of that. We have a probably a two events a week that go on within our company. And that's not led by management. That's by team members leading those kinds of events yeah. that are going on. Um, but things that we do overall, uh, engagement surveys every six months, get feedback from everyone. And part of that survey is actually my score as a CEO. And guess what the very first thing that they see? They see my score, right? We talk about that. We talk about ways to improve. We have team meetings as a result of that. Uh, there's a lot of habits we have, like weekly team meetings, one-on-ones, uh, feedback. We have an annual offsite meeting for each team where we do a 360-degree feedback session, which is amazing and difficult at the same time. Another thing is simply orientation. I run every single orientation. That's two and a half hours, and we talk about culture. We talk about our vision and where we're headed. And so those are some of those tips that we use. Yeah, I love I love the emphasis that it, it happens organically. It truly does. Yeah. I mean, if you if you get the the people that are going to um, assimilate into the culture that you've already established and they'll jive with it, they're just going to add to it. And and the organic events, I really uh, appreciate for sure. Yeah. Um, tell us about like zooming out again. Maybe if you could pinpoint, you know, what do you, what do you think your biggest challenges and lessons have been that you've learned? Well, I mentioned this several times. The, the employee is the number one thing that's most important uh, in getting that culture right. <laughs> if you fail at that, it, a lot of other things are just going to fall apart. If you succeed at that, even if you screw something else up, you're likely going to succeed regardless. Um, but beyond that, I think another really important lesson is to be really okay with failure. Anytime we start something new, we fail, right? It's just a human experience. It's, it's just being human, mm -hmm. but being okay with that and trying again and trying again and trying again through that process, you can eventually succeed. And so we've had a lot of stories and events that uh, are very much aligned with that principle. 
Let's pivot over to the economy. I'm sure it's on your mind. Um, how can it not be, especially if you run a, a business, right? Um, I would love to hear what your, even if you give us a tepid outlook, uh, could be conservative, I don't care. What What is your outlook for the next year? I mean, it's hard to argue that we aren't in some sort of a recession, although it seems to be like a very unique recession, not, not that they aren't individually anyway. Um, where do, where do you think we're headed in the next year? And then maybe speak on 2024. Are we, are we out of the darkness there? Where do you see things going? Well, I can speak really concretely about the real estate industry. Uh, it's not a great time in the real estate industry because interest rates are rising, right? Mm -hmm. And so we're feeling that effects as well. But what I'm seeing is new house starts declining right now. I think the last numbers I saw in multifamily was it's the smallest number of multifamily starts since like 2008 actually the data I have, uh, and that's just because of rising interest rates. And so what's going to happen is that's going to put this downward pressure on the, on the real estate market as far as providing new units. And right now we're going through a glut. And so the units being produced are actually a higher level than they ever had before. So I think we're going to see a decline a little bit in rental prices, which are going to put more negative pressure on the real estate industry. But then what's going to happen in a year or two is rental prices are going to climb back up because you're not going to have the supply you need to balance those factors out. And so I think real estate in particular is going to have a rough couple of years before it starts stabilizing again. Um, I, it's hard for me to say on the rest of the economy. Yeah, right. I, I just read through that same chart that you described where it's the lowest housing start since 20, uh, 2008. Uh, it's pretty amazing to see when you, when you kind of zoom out and look at all that sort of stuff. Um, so, but you mentioned that there was going to be downward pressure on the rental markets and that eventually will go back up because of this line gland. What do you think though, this means for, if we're having the lowest, um, if we still don't have the inventory for people who want to buy new houses, I mean, same effect where you think it's a supply and demand issue and like, well, like it might depress it this year, but eventually reality is going to hit and it's going to go like, well, we still don't have the kind of the amount of new houses that we need for people who want them and then prices and, and it definitely seemed like they would go up again. It's really interesting because right now, despite starts being the smallest they've ever been units under construction is the highest that it's ever been. And so for the next year or so, it's going to be pretty decent for a renter and probably a homeowner wanting to look to buy, but in a year or two out, it's going to be a totally different game. And so I, I see the housing crisis actually getting worse when you're looking at a couple of years, not getting better. And so we need solutions to solve that. Uh, well, you're part of the solution, obviously, because yeah. you guys are focused on driving down the cost as much as possible from your end. If you could wave a magic wand, what is one thing you would get away, you, you would abolish or change and it, as it pertains to the entitlement process, right? Getting, going through whatever jurisdiction you're working with. If I can wave a magic wand, what I would love to do is move the power rather than from local officials deciding if a project gets approved to more of a, a statewide approval process. Uh, Japan has a process like that where if you meet the rules and stuff of Japan, uh, of the wider country, you get to build your property. So many properties don't get passed simply because it's a good property. It meets all the rules. But the local homeowners, they just, they don't like change mm -hmm. and that stops so much. And so if we can pull that back a little bit, I think it would help a lot. Yeah. I like that. I, I haven't heard that one before. I like, believe it or not, 
like you're not, you know, New York City's rule is they have a time limit. Have you heard of this? Where like if you mm-hmm. submit for a permit and you don't have it within a certain amount of time, you by default you have you get it. Um, so I don't know. That's well, we have that in Minnesota, but the way it actually gets applied then is if they don't want to approve, they'll just deny you. Right. Right. So they'll they'll never let it accidentally go through. They'll actively deny you rather than that. And what you can do in Minnesota is as the developer, you can waive your right. And so a lot of times the cities will come back and say, All right, well, you can either get denied or you can waive your right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Kind of failed. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Interesting. Let's go back to the employees part of it. Um you you mentioned on um some of your your uh bio sheets here. Um Unlimited PTO that as soon as I saw that, I go, I got to ask him about this Um, is unlimited PTO, you know, paid time off, even do construction workers, the answer to employee happiness and higher productivity. I think it's a component. I think at the end of the day, what we're really trying to do is you want to support your employees as much as possible. And it works really nicely when the employee then tries to support the company as much as possible too. Once you have that marriage, it's phenomenal. If mm-hmm. either party doesn't do that, it kind of falls apart. And so with the unlimited paid time off, it's just part of that support. We actually looked at not our own industry, because I think our industry is, is not where it needs to be. We look at places like Google and Netflix, and we asked ourselves, can we take literally every benefit that they have and give it to our team? That's what we did, including unlimited paid time off, which there are headaches in doing that for hourly mm-hmm. construction workers, but it's what we do. Yeah, amazing, amazing strategy. It's a bold strategy, uh, I gotta yeah. say. I mean, I, I, I am a general contractor myself, so that would be a tough one to swallow. I try to be, we try to be flexible on the way we do it, right? So if they work overtime, or if we, honestly, if the weather just submits, or you know, makes us submit, we're just like, don't worry about it. We can make it up later. Um, just take the time off. Like, why be miserable outside if we if we don't have to? Mike, how how big employee wise are you guys? What do you have a number right now that you could give us? About two hundred and fifty. How do you how do you manage like what kind of techniques do you use? I'm only a team of nine, including our construction firm, not that big, um, not even close to you. So how how does somebody manage that large of a company? Like what kind of techniques have you brought in consultants? Oh yeah, we yeah we have a lot of a lot of coaches throughout my life that have helped guide me and tell me, hey Mike, you're an idiot, you need to change this or that, <laughs> and that's helped me tremendously. Uh, but you know. It all comes back to people. Like if you have great leaders underneath you, a lot of other things start falling into place. So most of my time tends to be more on vision casting and uh, holding us to our values and just building relationships with people or building relationships with people in the outside world. Um, but the actual like day-to-day management is now handed largely off to just really competent people who are capable of doing that well. Very cool. Uh, what is the long-term impact that you would like your company to have on the world? Mm. Long-term, we're trying to drive down the cost of housing. And if we can do that in a meaningful way and scale up nationwide, our hope is to produce so many units to the market that supply and demand factors hit and the price of housing comes down for everyone. I mean, we're already at 20 to 30% less in cost. We think we can achieve a 50% reduction in cost. Amazing. Think about what that means. It means someday your rent could be half or your mortgage payment could be half. So ultimately, my dream is to solve America's housing affordability crisis within my lifetime. 
Well, I wish you nothing but luck for that. Um, obviously, I'm always rooting for the private sector over the public sector in that regard, because I think we solve problems better. There's less bureaucracy. Um, we're more creative. We have different incentives. That, that's at the core of it, for sure. What would you say to somebody that would counter that and say, like, well, why don't we just do it like San Jose did, and we institute these affordable housing uh, policies you know, we mandate them, the developers, we're going to tax the developers. And that's the way to do it. It's not through providing more units like you're, like you're suggesting, which I'm in agreement with you, Mike, obviously. Yeah. What's your, what's your counter argument to somebody who says, oh, no, no, look, look, San Jose or any other, even the city I operate in. Now there's this tax on developers. They set aside the money. That's how we're going to get to affordable housing because they're, the government's going to build it essentially. Yeah, all the government can do is transfer wealth, right? And so if they were to limit the rents that we can have, you just spark on less development. If you uh, tax developers, you just make some properties more expensive so that other properties can be less expensive. Uh, unfortunately, none of those things fundamentally work. The only way you can solve it is by driving down the actual cost of construction. It's really about providing... Uh, improve productivity and innovation within our space that has been stagnant for 60 years. Yeah. Well, I, what do you, th on that note then, I mean, 3D, you know, th you keep seeing these headlines about 3D printing and then automation and AI and what, maybe speak to that if you would um, theorize about it. Like, do you see those components coming into play for you guys at some point and helping to revolutionize this industry, like you said, that hasn't really adapted. I mean, we're still building the sticks. Like, that's just the <laughs> truth. Yeah. Yeah. No, no, all those things are tools. But what's interesting is they get these big headlines, like, oh, big new mm -hmm. innovation. It sounds cool. It's There's not a silver bullet. Yeah. Um, the, the actual way to solve it is there is 10,000 problems. And you've got to solve each one of these 10,000 little problems. And the little problems all solved together make the massive impact. So I think it's cool. We we do use some of those technologies and we're actively like incorporating them into what we're doing, but none of them, none of them are silver bullets. They don't really solve it on their own. Yeah. Uh, Mike, we're coming up on the half hour here. Um, and so I've got two questions that I ask every guest. First one is knowing what you know now, and if you could go back in time to when you first jumped back into your business, what is one piece of advice you'd give your former self? hire the best person, people. I didn't know that initially and I struggled many years as a result. Um, once I understood that principle, it changed everything for us. So hire the very, very best. Yeah, beautiful. Mike, this has been fantastic. Um, I'm I'm really rooting for you to hopefully solve uh, these problems. I love the approach. Um, this has been, uh, this is the reason I reached out to you. I mean, I just knew that um, you were going to be one of these guests that really, He's going to keep even my wheels you know, churning for the next couple of weeks. Um, if people want to learn more about you, your company, what you guys do, maybe even work for you, where can they find and follow you? Yeah, you can visit our website, which is norhart.com. That's N-O-R-H-A-R-T. We have two interesting things there, Norhart Invest, an investment platform, and our new podcast called Becoming a Unicorn, but the journey of small businesses becoming billion-dollar enterprises. Beautiful. Mike, thanks again so much for being on the show. I hope you stay warm there up in Minnesota. Spring is on the horizon and we wish you guys again, nothing but success. Yeah. Thanks for having me.